Shane rightly reminded us earlier that the scriptures are absolutely central to everything that we are doing when we gather for worship. It's by his word that he calls us to his very presence. It's by the authority of his word that he cleanses us from his sin. It's around his word that we sing his praises, that we hear his praises, we listen to his praises, and now we're going to declare his praises through his word so that it's his word that tells us the meaning of the table that promises us that he's actually present spiritually with us to commune. When we come to the table in a few moments, this is such a high point of worship because Jesus, as the host of the meal, is inviting us to sup and commune with him. And he does all of this. This is part of that covenant renewal. This is the Lord's service where he's renewing us so that at the end, it's to be commissioned to send us out. So everything we do has a rhythm and a flow. We hear from God and then we respond to him. So the only way for us to hear rightly the word of God is if his spirit is taking that word and applying it to our lives. So let's pray. We call this a prayer of illumination where we are acknowledging our need of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit to glorify Christ by taking from what is Christ's and making it known to us, to show us his glory and his beauty, his goodness and his truth, his mercy and his grace. Father, show us the meaning of his word and the application of his word to our lives. So Holy Spirit, we look to you to be our teacher right now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I would like you, if you were able, one more time to stand for the reading of God's Word. As we do this in reverence and in honor of Him, we are starting a new series of studies this summer. We're looking at the letters of Jesus to the churches in Asia, the letters of Revelation, out of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The book of Revelation begins, chapter 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. It says, He made it known by sending his agent angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. This book as a whole is an unfolding. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. In other words, it's a message to the church. It is Jesus discipling his bride, 
the church. After Jesus died and he was raised again and he appeared before his disciples just prior to his ascension, he gave them a mission. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he taught them. Our friends here with Campus Outreach, you guys have a mission statement that kind of summarizes the Great Commission, does it not? It says, glorifying God by building up laborers on the campus for the lost world. I've always liked that. See, I have it written in my notes. We have a strategy here at Spruce Creek, same mission. Amazing how God gives us the same job and the same task to do, isn't it? Amazing how consistent and faithful he is. So we talk about our mission being to go and make disciples of all nations, and we say that we do that, and we call it the four R's, by reaching people, rooting them in the faith, renewing them so that they use their gifts in the faith, and then releasing them out into the world. By doing that, we are making disciples of all nations. Revelation 2 and 3 are, and they're typically or traditionally known as letters, more accurately, they are prophetic oracles. They don't follow the ancient Greek form of a letter. You don't have Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, salutation to the saints who are wherever. This is much more of a, thus saith the Lord in Jesus' space. It's like Amos or Ezekiel, thundering from on high the word of God. And he's speaking to the seven churches in Asia, the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna and the church in Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There's going to be a test later on that you have to find all those places on a map. How about that? We can make you do that. Now, I want you to think about something. Why seven? I'll let you in on a little something. There were more than seven churches in Asia. Have you ever heard of the book of Colossians? The church at Colossae was in Asia. You ever read the book of Acts and Paul's missionary journey and he goes to places like Lystra and Derbe and all, the, all those churches were in Asia. Why seven? Because in the ancient world, seven was the number of completeness. It was the number of consummation, the number of fulfillment. And so as one commentator put it, in addressing these seven particular churches, Jesus is addressing all of the churches, the entirety of the church. It turns out that these seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with which the church has struggled in every age and in every cultural setting. What we have here is Jesus discipling the church. He is giving spiritual training, spiritual direction to his people, his family, his bride, the body of Christ. We see as we go through these letters, each letter has kind of the same form. The training consists of three things. Jesus begins by affirming them. He will always begin by building building them up. He says, I know your works. I'm familiar with you. I'm acquainted with you. I know your struggles. I know what you're about. And he praises them. He affirms them. He says to the church at Ephesus, I've seen your patient toil, your endurance, your hard work. You bear up for my name. You don't compromise with evil. You make a stand for truth. So he gives them affirmation. He begins with, here's what you do well. Let me build you up. And then he moves in and he corrects them. And then after that, he gives them a promise. And usually that promise kind of, it's almost like a coin with a heads and a tail. It has a warning and it has a promise. He gives his people the warning, I'll remove your lampstand. 
And he gives them a promise to him who conquers, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. What is Jesus is doing here is he is giving faithful, spiritual direction. He's giving training in order for his people to live faithfully in the world. Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite writers, put it this way. He put it like this. He said, this three-part spiritual direction, this affirmation, this correction, this promise, trains God's people to live a life of confident faith in Christ in a hostile pagan environment. The process of affirmation, correction, and promise, the Greeks had a word for it. That word was called paideia, and paideia was their training. It was a complex process whereby the community passes on its passion, its excellence. In Revelation 2 and 3, this paideia, this training is given by Jesus, and it takes place in seven distinct areas. Together, it gives us a picture, a snapshot of what a disciple And as a church, a community, a society, a community of disciples is to be. In other words, we get a great picture of what spiritual formation is to look like. So in other words, in this oracle to Ephesus, he trains them to love. To Smyrna, the importance and the necessity of suffering. To Pergamum, he's going to teach about truth. To Thyatira, it's holiness. To Sardis, it's how to live authentically. In Philadelphia, it's about mission, and in Laodicea, it's worship. Together, these seven represent the entire church, and they give us, if you would, a snapshot, a picture of what a well-rounded, mature, sanctified, growing in Christ disciple looks like. If you could get a handle on these issues, love, suffering, truth, holiness, authenticity, mission, and worship, there is, in in a way, a curriculum for discipleship. If we can get a handle on these particular facets of discipleship, it could equip us, as Jamie Smith puts it, for an appreciation for the virtues and dispositions that are required to live in pluralistic societies and are inculcated through formation in liturgical communities. What Smith is saying is we need to be equipped as disciples and as churches to live in the world today. Many have said that today's world is much like the ancient world of the early church. And so the issues that were faced by Ephesus, by Smyrna, by Sardis, by Pergamum, by the rest, are much like the issues that we face today. And as Smith points out that if we're going to live faithfully, if we're going to be God's instruments, his faithful presence in a pagan, hostile, pluralistic environment... We need to have certain virtues, certain traits, certain dispositions in order to live faithfully in the world. So we're going to be exploring this summer through these seven letters, issues related to our discipleship, issues of love, suffering, worship, holiness, truth, mission, and authenticity. In order, here's kind of our goal, in order to how to live as faithful disciples in the world. In other words, how to be the church in the world. And I want you to remember something very important. We're not called to just do this by ourselves. This is not a lone ranger operation. These are letters, these are oracles. This is thus saith the Lord to the churches. 
So again, as one writer put it, he says, the gospel will always pull us into community. And he writes, sin, both our own and that of others, drives us, and I love how he puts this, into customized selfishness. Separation from God becomes separation from neighbor. And the same salvation that restores our relation with God reinstates us in the community of persons who live by faith. This warning he gives every tendency to privatism, to isolation, to individualism, distorts and falsifies the gospel. Friends, these are letters written to faithful communities to how to be the church in the world. You're not called to go it alone. This morning we begin with the church at Ephesus. And after the affirmation that we looked at, if you look down and the words are printed in your program, you have them there. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know your works. He's walking, he says, he's holding the seven stars. And earlier, I didn't print this, but chapter 1 said the seven stars are the seven angels of the church. There's a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. It's not a code for us to crack, but it's more imagery to get us to visualize spiritual truth. So the seven stars are seven angels that Jesus is holding under his sovereign authority, under his power, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands. And what does a lampstand do? It shines light. And Jesus is amongst them, and he says those seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The church, in other words, is the light of the world, and it's called, its fundamental identity is to shine that light through its love of God and neighbor to onto the world. And so Jesus begins by affirming them. He's saying, I know your works. Why do I know your works? Because I walk amongst you. I'm not far off and going, huh, I wonder if you're near. I walk amongst you. I'm in your midst. I dwell with you. So therefore, I know your struggles. I'm intimately acquainted with the challenges you face. I know your strengths. I know your weakness. So I know that you toil hard. I know that you work hard. I know that you endure patiently. I know that you can't stand to compromise with evil. And guess what? That's all good. In other words, he's saying, everything I'm telling you, keep doing. What I'm about to say doesn't mean stop taking a stand for truth. But he goes on, he says, I've got this against you. You're doing all this, and, I want, and it's great, and I want you to keep doing this. But guess what? You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned the love you had at first. So Jesus is teaching us, he is saying, you've lost your identity. You've lost your center. And this message is about how can we recapture our vision of love. I want you to ask two questions of yourself as I work my way through this text. I want you to ask as we talk about recapturing the vision of love, I want you to ask yourself, have I abandoned the love I had at first? Not am I still standing for truth. Not am I not compromising with evil. Not am I doing great things to help my community. Not am I making a lot of friends. Not am I, have I abandoned the love I had at first? And how do I recapture it? Because Jesus' correction, Jesus' challenge, and there is a stern warning that goes along with this, is I have this against you. This is the Lord of Lords saying he has something against the church. So I take that as that's a pretty serious thing. You have abandoned the love you had at first. How do we recapture that? 
there's two things. We are called to remember the vision of love, and we are called to express in repentance the vision of love. Remembrance and repentance is the way to recapture the vision of love. First of all, how do we remember the vision of love? Verse 1 begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Let's learn a little bit about Ephesus. Okay? Revelation was written towards the end of the first century AD, and at that particular time, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. About AD 96, the population was about 225,000. And right after Rome, which was the center of the empire, and then Alexandria, which was found in Egypt, and Antioch, which was in Syria, where followers of Jesus were first called Christians, Ephesus was the fourth largest city. And it was an extremely strategic city. First of all, it was a financial hub. A lot of business, a lot of economy. If you were kind of working your way through the Roman Empire, Ephesus would be the first city you would come to. It would also, it was also very much... Uh, a religious hub. One of the things it was most well known for, in fact, it was called one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world, was that it was home of the temple of the goddess Artemis. In Rome, or by the Romans, her name was called Diana, and they built a great temple for her. And Ephesus, then, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the first church Jesus is writing to. This is a strategic church in a strategic city known for its business, its politics, and its religious pluralism. So if you think about this, the church was planted, a little bit of its history, it was planted by the Apostle Paul. We read in the book of Acts, he had help from his co-workers, Priscilla and Aquila. The congregation is nurtured. And then in Acts chapter 19, we find out that Paul had to flee the city because a riot broke out. And again, it shouldn't surprise us because Paul is preaching. What do you think he's preaching? Did you pay attention to what Shane read earlier? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does the Lord is one mean? Have no idols. So he walks right into the center of Ephesus, where what are they known for? Idol worship. The goddess Diana, the goddess Artemis, and its temple. And he basically walks into the center, and he says, uh-uh, none of that. And the Holy Spirit's working. People are responding. People are coming to faith. And what are they doing? They're repenting of their idolatry. And what you have is it's affecting the local economy. People are, trade associated with the temple starts to go down. And I don't know about you, but my experience in life is people don't like when you mess with their money. Just kind of a normal thing. When you mess with people's money, they tend to react. It usually doesn't get this cool, neutral type of reaction. They did that. They had a riot. Paul had to flee the city. He had to leave. He left the pastoral care of the church to his protege, Timothy. And church tradition has it that at the end, towards the end of the first century, Timothy was, was murdered by the Romans. And then John, who is receiving this revelation, these letters, was called to Ephesus to be the pastor and bishop of the church at Ephesus. And it was from Ephesus towards the end of the first century that he wrote his fourth gospel. And so it's this church, a strategic church in a strategic city that Jesus, after affirming them, saying you've got the correct doctrine, 
You have a commitment to truth. You don't compromise with evil. You are on the watch. You're on the lookout for false teachers. You patiently endure. You work hard. You have tremendous programs. You have great ministries. He's saying, keep doing all this. He never says repent of that, but he says you've become disconnected from your center, which is love. In other words, he's saying truth without love is no longer truth. And he says, remember, and look at how he words this, remember the height from which you have fallen. He's saying you've abandoned your center, loving God and neighbor, because what does it mean to have God as your first love? What is the summer? Why did we read out of Deuteronomy 6? Why did I have in our confession, Mark 12, the summary of the law? Because that center, our identity, the church is to be defined by. God's covenant people are to be defined by love of God and love of neighbor. That's the center. Everything else flows out of that. We are called. The fulfillment, the purpose of being the covenant people of God is to love God with all our beings and to witness to the light of Christ by loving our neighbor as ourselves. The church at Ephesus has abandoned these things. They've abandoned the love they had at first. Have we? Have you? These are serious questions. Commentator Greg Peel puts it this way. He says, although they were ever on guard to maintain the purity of the apostolic teaching, the Ephesian Christians were not diligent in witnessing to the same faith in the outside world. They no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. See, by the way, this is, this is how the warning that comes in verse 7. If a church, the removal of a lampstand, because if a church is no longer functioning, what, a lamp, what does a lampstand does? It shines a light. It's not the light itself. It shines its light to the outside world. So in other words, if a church is no longer functioning as a light to its neighbors, what good is it? Where's its usefulness? There's no use for it. We are to be a church for our neighbors. We are to be a church for our city. We are to be a church for our community. The church is called to be a church for the community in which it resides. That means our love for God must be expressed in our love for neighbor. And that love for neighbor is expressed in proclamation of the gospel in both word and deed. The first step in recapturing the vision is remember your center. Remember the love you had at first. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And then what do we do next? We repent. And we express that vision of love in works of love. See, verse 5 says, repent and do the works. The works are not repentance, that's expression. Those are the fruits of repentance. Repent and do the works you did at first. But to repent means to turn around, to change direction. So that means the church at Ephesus was going this direction. Great apostolic teaching, great programs, great ministry, disconnected from love of God and love of neighbor, which means change direction, do an about face, and do the works you did at first. Still teach and worship and do the programs and do the ministries connected to, with a heart of love and God, of love of God and love of neighbor. It means fundamentally move from being an inward-facing, turned inward upon yourself, church, to being an outward-facing, moving towards your community, moving towards your neighbors, asking questions like, what are their needs? 
How can I serve them? How can we witness to and bring the gospel to them? Practical questions. And what is the nature of this repentance? Jack Miller writes, what then is the basic fundamental nature of the church? He says, is it to serve itself and its own self-centered interests? Or even, first of all, to serve others? He says, no. Its fundamental character is to belong to God. Verse 1 says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The church at Ephesus acquires identity from him who holds the seven stars, those seven angels, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. As one writer put it, the church has its identity only in relation to Christ. God makes the church. Every church is defined by the living Christ. Apart from Christ, these churches would have location, but no identity. There is no church apart from Christ. Elements from the Christ vision in Revelation 1 define the church communities in Revelation 2 and 3. The church fundamentally belongs to and is connected to Christ. In other words, here it is real simply. No Christ, no church. We are to be outward facing in our witness to Christ and in our love for neighbor because we belong to God. The heart of repentance is to recognize we are not our own. We belong to God. We are his. He has bought us with a price. Friends, where do we get the power to do this? Where do we get the motivation to do this? To remember, to repent, to recapture the vision of love, to be reconnected with love at the center of our identity with Christ. Look with me at verse 7, the conclusion of this prophetic oracle. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is an incredible, incredible promise. To those who overcome, to the one who conquers, which means those who through faith in Christ hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And friends, do you want to know what the Spirit is always saying to the churches? The Spirit is always saying to the church, look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Meditate on what he has done for you. Be tethered to, connected to, oriented to the center, which is the love and grace of Christ. Overcoming is not working harder. Overcoming is not some sort of reward. Overcoming is about being connected to Jesus Christ. As we go to the Lord's table, where Jesus has invited us to commune with him, to be connected to him, listen to how one commentator put it. He writes, the tree of life is found in the first pages of the Bible and also in the last It is there in the first creation, in the middle of the Garden of Eden. It is there in the new creation, in the middle of the city of God. In the first creation, the way to it is blocked. No one can get to it. It represents all the goodness, all the goodness of life, the Lord of life longs to share with those who love him. In the first creation, because of sin, 
the way to it is blocked. But in the new creation, the blocks have been removed. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. By the death of Jesus, the way has been opened, and it turns out that the tree of life is Jesus himself. His promise to first love lovers is more of himself. Do you hear what the Spirit is saying? Remember Jesus' love. Return to Jesus' love and express that love to God and to neighbor in witnessing, in word and in deed, by your actions, by your attitude, by your demeanor, by the kind of your virtues and your dispositions. Be the church in the world witnessing to the grace and the love of Christ. Your first love, don't abandon, to, don't abandon it. Make that your center. Express Jesus' love and love for him and love for others. The first part of spiritual formation. Be committed to be trained in love. Let's pray. By the blood of Jesus, you have opened the way to the tree of life. And Father, we have the privilege of bearing witness, of sharing that good news with others by expressing it in word and in deed to others. Father, you've not only given us your word, but you've given us the sacrament, your supper, your meal to renew us, to strengthen us by your presence to be with us. We pray now, Father, that at this meal you would feed us with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.